theyeshiva.net. Tonight, we go to the topic of prayer, of davening. Making davening relevant to people's lives. You'll allow me to begin with two anecdotes. That's even before I said it. Okay, I'm glad, I'm glad you trust me. There was once a rabbi in South Africa... So he shared, in South Africa, the main sermon of rabbis is Friday night. Everybody comes to shul Friday night. So uh, this rabbi would get up and speak Friday night, give the drasha, give the sermon. And there was this Jew sitting in the front row, his name was Berkowitz. And he would always sleep. The rabbi would open his mouth, and it was almost like in a charm. He immediately fell asleep, and he didn't just sleep as is the custom of great Jews and shuls during the rabbi's sermons, they snore so that everybody can experience the delight and the ecstasy and the depth of this person's slumber. And so the rabbi spoke for years and Berkowitz slept for years. One Friday night, the rabbi was walking up to the pulpit and as he's walking up, Berkowitz is already snoring. This offended the rabbi very deeply. He couldn't contain himself. After 20 years, he plots. He says, Berkowitz, I don't understand you. Mele, when I start talking, you say I'm boring, I'm monotonous, I'm irrelevant, there's nothing to hear, so you sleep. But now I didn't even begin yet. I didn't open my mouth yet. I'm not even at the pulpit. I'm just walking up. Why are you sleeping? And he looks up from his seat, half asleep, and he says, Rabbi, I trust you. This is the situation in many, in many a shul and many a synagogue. So they tell the anecdote that there was this fellow who decided to build a world-class pub, a world-class bar, and the piece of real estate that he acquired happened to be right near a great shul. And the people in the shul felt very perturbed by the concept that as they're walking Shabbos into davening, people right next door will be inebriated, intoxicated, drunk, and not the most appropriate uh, place for uh, moral development and spiritual sensitivity. So they tried to sue him, it didn't work. So instead the rabbi suggested that they pray to God that the bar just doesn't come to fruition. And they prayed, and they davened, and they prayed. The renovation of the pub was complete, and the day of the Hanukkah Sabayis of the pub The day of the opening, there was a huge storm and a lightning hit the bar and it burnt down. A few weeks later, the board of directors of the synagogue get in the mail a summons to court. The owner of the bar is suing them. What? He says because of their prayers, the lightning struck the bar And the whole renovation, 
There's a gang of Fife, and he lost a tremendous amount of money. They appear at court, and the judge is looking through the paperwork, and he says, what do you have to say? The president of the synagogue says, this is ridiculous. We can affect lightning in the bar? All we did was, we stood, and we recited psalms, and we prayed from prayer books. We were doing spiritual stuff. What does that have to do with the bar? This lawsuit is senseless. It's rubbish. We're not responsible. So the judge looks up, he says, listen, I don't know how I'm going to decide this case, but one thing is very obvious from the onset, and that is the owner of the bar believes in prayer. The people in the synagogue absolutely don't have any faith in prayer. That's one thing, sure. They say that it was once Yom Kippur, and there was, you have all these temples that in order to get in Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, you need a ticket. You buy your ticket before, and then you show your ticket and you get in. This guy comes to a temple, and the guard by the door says, do you have a ticket? He says, I don't have a ticket. He says, you can't come in? He says, i got to go in for five minutes. He says, without a ticket, you can't come in. He said, I'm just going in. My father is there. My father has a ticket. I have to give an important message to you. My father, let me in. I'm going to come around. He says, okay, no problem, but let me not catch you pray. <laughs> this condition is fulfilled by many. And so, tonight we continue to explore the world of davening and the world of prayer. And I again have to say at the onset that really this topic deserves a longer series, which uh, maybe one day we'll be able to do on the process of davening. But I'm trying here to cover some at least major, major points. And the big question is, last week, last Thursday night at Muna. Or was it number 22, Chavbeis, Keneged Chavbeis, Isis Atayra, from Aleph through Tov? We spoke a lot about different aspects of davening. And the question, and a few people emailed the question, is practically, how do you make any of this practical in people's lives, both for adults and for children? And I want to explore this I will go back to go back to the sources. So I'm going to learn with you a few lines from a Rambam. The Rambam, in the laws of davening, Hilchus Tfila, chapter 4, says, and I quote, Kol tfila she'ena bekavona e'na tfila. A tfila that is not done with kavona, kavona means mindfulness, attentiveness, attention, thoughtfulness, is not a davening. It's not a prayer. And then the Rambam explains what he means a few lines later. What do I mean by kavana, by thoughtful, mindful awareness? What does this mean? One should vacate his or her heart from all various thoughts and experience themselves as standing in the presence of the divine, the presence of the Shechina. And here, we're going to learn a shtikl, Reb Chaim. Chidushay Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi al I believe it's the second piece of Chidushay Reb Chaim. So all Bachrim who learn Reb Chaim should certainly know this Reb Chaim by heart, because if I'm not mistaken, it's the second shtikl 
of Reb Chaim. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, Chidush Reb Chaim Alevi Al Rambam is a commentary on the Rambam's Mishnah Torah that was authored by Reb Chaim Halevi Soloveitchik, also known as Reb Chaim Brisker, who passed away in the who was born in 1858, passed away 1918 in August in Av Tafresh Ches, and was considered one of the great giants of Torah and leaders of his generation, also credited with developing or accentuating or emphasizing a certain analytical approach to learning known as the briske derech. And this is actually a classic example of this. And we're going to learn today a piece of Reb Chaim. Reb Chaim asks a big question on this Rambam. The Rambam says, as I said in Hilchist Tfila 4, chapter 4, Perek Dalet, that Tfila she'ena bekavona e'ena Tfila. A Tfila without kavona, without thoughtfulness, is not Tfila. The Rambam says, you have to read Avon. Asks Reb Chaim, he says, I don't understand. The same Rambam, six chapters later, and Hilchist Tfila Perik Yud says something completely different. And I quote, Mi she libay, If somebody daven without kavana, he should do it again. However, if you had kavana by the first blessing of Shemayin Esra, Mogen Avram, fine. Even if you didn't have kavana, the rest of davening, meaning it was mechanical, it was robotic, you don't have to repeat Shmanesra. Mevuelahedya de kavana eina makeves akbebrocherishoyna v'tzarechia. Ask Reb Chaim a gavaldik question. In chapter four of Hilchas Tefillah, the Rambam says, Tefillah without kavana is nishkin Tefillah. Which part of Tefillah? The whole Tefillah, the whole Shmanes Tefillah. In halacha means Shmanesra. The whole tefillah, the whole what we call Amida, is not a tefillah. You got to redo it. Six chapters later, the Rambam changed his mind. He has a whole different explanation, perspective. He says, "Yeah, you have to have kavana, and if not, if you did the first blessing with kavana, you're good to go. If you didn't, then you have to repeat it." This is Reb Chaim's question, Gavaldika question. Venire Loimar, he says. And this is a brisk of art, remember. Venire loimar detrei gavne kavones yesh Says Reb Chaim, the kavona of Perik Dalit is not the kavona of Perik Yud. The word kavon is used in both, but it's a different type, it's a different genre of kavona, it's a different experience of kavon. The Perik Dalit Ram, Perik Yud Ram is not a contradiction because there's two different types of Kavanas. In Perik Yud, the Rambam is talking about Pirush Hamilus. Translation of the words, understanding the words. Kavana shall Pirush Advarim. To grasp, doesn't have to be in Yiddish. To grasp what you're saying, to understand what you're saying. So the Rambam is saying the first brach of Shmanesra must have Kavana. Granted. If you had Kavon in the first Baruch of Shmanesra, even though you went on to Ate Gibra and Ate Kaddish, <coughs> and Ate Choyin and Hashivenu, Slachlanu, etc., all the way to Sim Shalom, the last blessing, and you're just saying words, and you're not thinking the meaning of the words, 
as sometimes happens, present company excluded, at least part of present company excluded, at least from tonight, you're fine. The kavana and Perik Dalit, Reb Chaim says it's a different kavana. What's that kavana? That's not the kavana understanding the words. It's the mindful thoughtfulness that I'm standing and I'm communicating to God. And the proof is in the words of the Rambam. And Perik Dal, the Rambam says, what's this kavana? He doesn't say the words... He says, Nothing to do with the particular words you're saying. If you're talking about wisdom, or repentance, or forgiveness, or redemption, or health, or livelihood, <coughs> or, or your enemies, or Mashiach, or your general shmak, or your general need supplications. It's the consciousness that I'm standing and talking to Hashem. Says Reb Chaim, the two kavonis have completely different meanings and different consequences. Without the without the kavon of Perik Yud, what's missing? I don't understand the words that I'm saying. Okay, I'm saying words, and I don't understand what I'm saying. Without the first kavon of Perik Dalit, I'm now going to use my own words. I'll use his words, but explain the way I understand it. What's missing is, he says, you don't have what we call Maise Tefillah. As the Rambam says, Tefillah belay kavon ain't a tfila. It's not a tfila. The Heftza of Tefillah is missing, if you will. Let me explain. If I'm blowing Shoifan Rosh Hashanah, What's the chefts of the mitzvah? What's the object of the mitzvah? To have a shoifer and blow it. Shake lulav on sukkahs. Have a lulav and shake the lulav. Eat matzah on Pesach. What's the chefts of the mitzvah? You have matzah. And you the act of eating the matzah, consuming the matzah. What about tefillah? What's the chefts of tefillah? You'll say tefillah is you get up and you say words. No. That's not the chefts of tefillah. That's part of tefillah. The chefts of tefillah is a consciousness of a relationship. If I don't have the consciousness of a relationship that I'm speaking to somebody, it's not pshat, I'm missing a condition. I'm missing a detail. There's no chefts of tefillah. There's no tefillah. In the words of Reb Chaim, it's like you skip the words. Imagine somebody comes to shul, sits at the table, drinks a coffee, checks his texts, and leaves. Say, did you daven? Of course. What made you daven? He said, I came to show. So it's the same thing. You said words, but there was no davening. What is davening? What is tefillah? It's not kavana is a detail in tefillah. That is what makes it tefillah. Yes. Exactly like that. <laughs> That's what turns it into tefillah. Without that, it didn't begin as a tefillah bichlal. So there's no contradiction. In Perik, you that I'm talking about understanding the words, there you need the first bracha. Of course, it's better to focus on the meaning of every single blessing. But Bidi Eved, if you didn't, the first blessing suffices. In Perik Dalit, he's talking about a different kavana. He's talking about the kavana of Oymed Lufnei Hashchina, that I'm actually talking to God. There's a relationship between us. There's somebody listening to me. There's somebody who's interested in what I'm saying. The world is not deaf to my feelings, to my requests, to my prayers, to my experiences. 
Of course, there's also the, the words of tefillah. That's also part of tefillah. But the kavana here of tefillah is essential. It's not a tenaya, detail in tefillah, condition in tefillah. That is what makes a tefillah. What is tefillah? If I have a tape recorder, or today an MP3 player, and the MP3 player has all the shmanasra beautifully. So I do it by my table, I press it, and it says, Baruch Hashem All the words were said. You're not going to say it's a tefillah. What makes it feel? What makes it feel is that there's a consciousness, there's some experience, there's some awareness, and this is the first, therefore, the first step of the prerequisite of tefillah. When you want to try to make it relevant, is when a person before they start davening, the first thing before I open my mouth, presence of mind, I'm here. I came to a meeting, I showed up to a relationship. Presence of mind, before I even verbally articulated one word. I am here, standing in the presence of one who I am communicating with. Now frankly, this is very difficult for people. Here we come to the problem. They say there was a Jew who came to the Chayza of Lublin, the seer of Lublin, and he said... I need advice from Achshavah Zaras during davening. I have alien thoughts during davening. So the Chayz of Leblin said, No, 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 no. You don't have Machshavah Zaras during davening. Your davening is the Machshavah Zara. Meaning you're thinking about different things. It happens to be that the davening is the alien thought. They have signs in Shul's Asr, Ledaber, B'Shah, Satfila. You're not allowed to talk during davening. In some shuls they should have a sign, You shouldn't daven while you're talking. The Chayz of Lublin says, you don't have alien thoughts. You didn't even begin davening. You're that, they're not alien. <laughs> he once said, they're not alien thoughts. That's what you're thinking about. The davening is actually alien. The point that he was making was, is, this person doesn't have other thoughts coming in. The davening is the alien thought, because the person didn't yet even develop the discipline and the presence of mind to be able to go in to that mindful state. In Tehillim, Kapitel Chaf, we say, They fight wars with chariots and horses. We mention God's name. So somebody once gave the following interpretation. When a Gentile has to travel from one place to another place, he needs a chariot, a coach, or horses, or a car, or a plane, or a boat, or a helicopter. Vanachnu, and we want to travel somewhere. B'shem Hashem nasker. All you have to do is start davening Shmei Mention God's name, Baruch Atah Hashem, and suddenly you're on a flight to Israel, to Moscow, to London, to Los Angeles, to Chicago, and it's always first class seats, and the food is good, and the service is unbelievable, and there's no lines in security, and you're successful, and then you go back three steps, and you land back in JFK, and Newark, and you're back to business. <laughs> they say there was once a Jew, and he was summoned to court by his parrots, by his overlord who was responsible. And it was a serious court case, he came to his Rebbe, 
And he asked him for advice. What do I say? So he says, he'll say this, you say this. He says, Vasazab the Paritz is going to come up with this concept. He says, then you'll say this. He says, but what if he comes up with this story? Then you'll say this. He says, yeah, but what if he concocts this whole libel against me? He says, listen, you don't have to worry. The Paritz, David Nitschmanasser. <laughs> this man doesn't David Nitschmanasser like you. He doesn't have the mental space to come up with uh, all of these ideas. You just got it. There was somebody who was once... Uh, Speaking to his students. A mentor, he was talking to his students. So he said, I don't understand you students. A Holshman Asri, you think about something else. You think about appointments you have, you think about business problems, or whatever challenges you have. A Holshman Asri. And then at the end, you say, The words of my mouth should be, pleased, accepted by you willingly, and the thoughts of my heart should be accepted before you. How do you have the chutzpah, the audacity, to say these words after a Hoshmina Esra, you were mentally absent? So one of the boys says, because when we say Yehuli Ratzin, we're also mentally absent. It's, it works perfectly. But it's very interesting. Sometimes a person told me, he says, I decided I'm going to try having Kavana by davening. So I went back three steps. And then I went forward three steps. I said, today it's going to be different. And I go, Baruch, Ata, Hashem. And then suddenly, out of the blue, Sim, Shalom, Toivo, Vrocha, Chaim, Chaim, Vechesed, Verachemem. And I tell myself, wow, that was fast. How does this guy manage to daven Shemina Esra so fast? And that is what the Rambam is saying. And I should say the words of the Rambam are quoted in Shulchan Aruch and in Tur and Silchas Tvil and Simon Sadik Ches, that the first thing is the person has to be able to show up. Show up not just physically, show up mentally. To be able to have the presence of mind, the attentiveness of communication, of being in some form, basic form of a relationship. Then there's a concept called Machshav And that is, in many people's lives, even if they're present and they're attentive, there are going to be various thoughts that make their way into your brain and you don't have to despair. On the contrary, the Tanya says in chapter 28, the Balatanya says, when two people are having an arm wrestle. So as long as I'm winning you, so as long as the competition is fierce, so I'm pushing you this way, you're pushing me this way, we don't know yet who's going to win. If I mamish almost got you down, suddenly you muster all your strength and energy and you put up a fierce battle to fight back. In all wrestling it's this way, when you see you're about to lose, you give it the last shot and suddenly you come out with all of your prowess, all of your power. The same is true also in a person's psychological and emotional and spiritual life. Sometimes you're having a good and meaningful davening, and then in the middle of what's supposed to be the most sacred spot, types of thoughts come in, emotions, experiences, and they sometimes make you feel like a spiritual loser. Especially things that are promiscuous, or ugly, or repulsive, or grotesque. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you may know what I'm talking about. At least I know what I'm talking about. At least there's one person here who does not make him believe he doesn't know what he's talking about. 
And when this happens, a person, in other words, I'm talking about a person who has presence of mind. But in the middle of the journey, sometimes at that peak moment, whatever, whatever it is, a person can experience either just distractions, alien thoughts, and sometimes the thoughts are really disturbing. And then they emerge and like, where am I? Don't see it as a failure. Sometimes it's the opposite. When you're winning an arm wrestle, the opponent has to fight back hard. So sometimes when you're having a very meaningful davening, a powerful davening, the superficial forces or the beastly consciousness in the person or the husks of the person's psyche muster their strength. Sometimes it's not called a machshav azara. They didn't even start. That's what the Chayzer says. It's not a machshav azara. The whole tefillah is a machshav azara. But I'm talking about a person who did, who did begin. But now, I want to go one step deeper. And continue our exploration about what really davening is. If you'll ask an ordinary Jew, what is davening? They'll say it's prayer. What is prayer? Prayer means you ask for things. It's called bakasha strachav in Hebrew. You ask for your needs, and that's true. The Rambam says the mitzvah of davening is you ask... Hashem, your needs. And certainly in Shemayin Esra, that's what we do. We ask for collective needs. We ask for individual needs. We ask for spiritual needs, like wisdom and tshuva and geula. We ask for physical needs, like health and livelihood and success and serenity, peace, etc. So that's obviously a major aspect of tefillah. But when we think about it, that gives us a very, very uh, limited perspective on what davening is. And the first place in which you see this is, there's the very famous Mishnah and Gemara, Meseches Brachas, Daf Lamed and Lamed Beis, about Chassidim HaRishonim, about the Chassidim of Yore, the pious men of Yore, Chassidim HaRishonim, how long would they spend a day davening? Anybody remembers? Nine hours. <laughs> Nine hours. That means if the day consisted of 12 hours, 9 hours of that day, they spent davening. Well, it wasn't only day, it was Shachris 3 hours, Mincha 3 hours, and Mairav 3 hours. And I ask you now a question. 9 hours they had to spend in order to figure out what they need? Generally, if they had 9 hours a day to daven, probably didn't have so many needs. Or they had different types of needs. What were they doing for 9 hours? An hour before tefillah, an hour tefillah, and then an hour after davening. After davening, davening itself took an hour. Davening here means What was this? You take a look in Tur, and Shulchan Aruch, and Mishnah Brura, the basic codes of Jewish law, or Shulchan Aruch Harav, all the Shulchan Aruchs, and I'm going to quote, this is what the Hasidim, the pious ones, and men of great deeds, noble deeds used to do. They would go into his boidedus, which means spiritual meditation, 
and they would be mindful during their davening to the point that they would divest themselves from materialism, they would experience the prevailing of their intellectual and spiritual power reaching close to the state of prophecy. This is a halacha in Tur and in Shulchan Aruch Simen Tzadik Ches. And it's based, of course, on the Gemara and the Rambam, quotes it, that they used to daven nine hours a day. So the Shulchan Aruch is explaining, the Tur is explaining what they did. Misboided them, they went into some form of mindful isolation. Umizchavnin libon to the point of his pashtus agashmis, his gabrus koyach asichli karav lomailasanavu. Now, just for references, this is a Mishnah and a Gemara about Chesedim Harishayna. Then you have Rambam, was written by Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, he passed away in 1135 in Egypt. He was born in Cordova in Spain, 16, 70 years earlier, and he passed away in Egypt, Chav Tevis, 1135. Then you have the Tur, was written by Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Osher, the son of the Rosh, Rabbeinu Osher. He was born in Germany, he passed away in Spain in the year 1343. Then you have the Shulchan Aruch, written by Rabbeinu Yosef Karo, who passed away 1575 in Tzvas. So you see how Jewish history works. The Raman passed away 1135. The Tur, which is the next major halacha code, it's 200 years later, it passes away 1343. Hey, Allah from Kuf Gimel. And the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, who authored the Shulchan Aruch, and the Kesef Mishnah, and the Beis Yosef, and his work on Kabbalah, Magid Meshachar, passed away 200 years later, 1575. Shin Lamed Hay and Svas. Just for historical perspective. So we praise the Hasidim or Rishonim for what? It took them nine hours to say what they need. What's the big deal and why they need so much time? Next question. Next question. The Gemara Masech Tainis in the beginning says that Tfilah is avoidish When it says in Kriyashma, Avdei B'chol Avavchem, serve him with your heart, Ezei avoidish abalev zu Why is Tfilah called avoidish abalev? You're going to say because it needs Kavana Salev. You have to think what you're saying. You're standing in front of the Shechina. But there's a lot of other parts of Judaism you have to think what you're saying. For example, Sfiris Ha'aymer, counting the Aymer, or benching, or Karbonus, they're not called Avodah Shabalev. Why is Tfilah called Avodah Shabalev? It's really just about ask, asking your needs. And the heart is simply a prerequisite that when you ask for your needs, you should know what you're talking about. Another question. If the whole of davening is asking needs, we should stand up and say, Baruch Hashem, and go through Shmanesra. Why do we have this long introduction of the whole Pesukah de Zimra, all the blessings of Shema, and the Shema, and the blessings after Shema, as a preparation for, for, for davening? Davening is asking our needs. Why do we go through all those Psalms of Tehillim? Baruch Shaman, and Yehichvoid, and Ashre, and all the Halalukas, and Vayevarech David and the Shiris Hayam. What, why every single day? Three times, every single day, 365 times a year. What's the point? The Tur says, Rabbi Yaakov, the Tur, Arachayim Simen Nun Gimel says, before you ask for your needs, you praise God. Sidur Shvachesh al But there has to be more because Shmon Esra already consists of three blessings. Will you praise Hashem before you ask for your needs? 
the first three blessings of Shemayin Esra are what? Shvachay Shalmakim. You praise God. The last three are gratitude. So you already did that in Shemayin Esra. Why do you need the whole Pesukah de Zimra? But there's really even a more basic question. I understand by a mortal president, I understand if you need something lahavdal from Trump, the best thing to do is compliment him for an hour. He'll get you places. He does it himself, so certainly he likes to hear it from other people. Generally, a human king, people like compliments. Right? I once complimented somebody, so he said there's no need. I said, I know there's no need, but I never heard of a dintaira where somebody took somebody to a dintaira because he complimented him too much. Somehow, no major fights came out of that. Taka, no need, but People like attention, they like approval, they like validation. But I ask you, what is it exactly that Hashem, the master of the universe, is looking with all this praise every single day for a very long time before we're capable of asking our needs? And it's not one praise. We go on and on of talking about His glory and His eternity and His greatness and He does everything. Haidu and Mizmala Said and Yichvoid and the whole Ashra and every single Halalukah, non-stop. Shiru, Shvacha, Halal, Zimra, Oizmam, Shola, Netzah, okay, we got the point. People who have a bottomless pit of insecurity love endless, endless compliments, and you could never fill it. Because they don't even believe you. (laughs) So they just want more and more and more and more. And it still doesn't help. They come back for more. And the moment you stop complimenting them, they want to know what do you have against them. But these are all functions of insecurity, which are human conditions. What is exactly the necessity of it? when it comes to God, and even if there is, why so much and so long when you do it already in the middle of Shemana And that's why it's so important for us to understand that there's a depth in davening that extends to asking for needs, but extends to a far deeper reality. And this is discussed in Chayvah Salavavas. It's discussed in Sefer Chassidim in Sefer HaKuzari by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, in other words, already the era of the Rishonim, and in great length in subsequent Svarim of Kabbalah, Musra, and Ashkafa, and the greatest elaboration and length about this second dimension of prayer is in the works of the world of Hasidism, the world of Hasidus. And to put it succinctly, maybe in one sentence, the objective of davening is Really the journey, the daily journey to discover yourself. To discover who you are. To discover who you really are. And this needs a daily journey. Because the discovery of who I really am is not an easy task. There are so many different ways in which we experience ourselves. We have so many layers. We have so many blockages. We have so many husks and peels and shells. Even a good functional life. We often deal with so much toxicity 
sometimes trauma, sometimes dysfunction, and just part of the reality of life, that the daily battle for self-discovery is one of the most essential components of Judaism and of the life of the Jew. They tell an anecdote about a king who once went hunting, and like all the good stories, he got lost, and it started to rain and pour, and thunder and lightning, and he couldn't find the path back. And at some point, it was late at night, and he can hear the sounds of hungry, undomesticated beasts who are searching for a nice dinner or midnight snack or pre-dawn breakfast. And as they're approaching him, he suddenly sees a little hut with a light, and he knocks on the door, and an old peasant opens the door and brings him in and saves him. And he sleeps the night there, and in the morning the man shows him the path back to the city, and he says, by the way, I am the monarch, I am the king of this country, I'm going to reward you handsomely. The man thought that probably from all the terror and dread, he lost his mind. So he said, yeah, yeah, I know, it's good to visit a doctor when you come back home, try to visit a doctor, we'll help you, and all will be good. But a few days later, a royal entourage stops by the hut, and summons him to the palace, and he goes into the king, it's Takya, he saved the king. And the king says, I want to reward you handsomely for saving my life. There would have been no point for my life. It would have ended up in the abdomen of a lioness. What can I give you? He says, who am I to tell his majesty what to give me? Whatever you give me will be my honor. He says, I can give you money and gold and silver and jewels and rubies and pearls. But for me, that will not constitute a real gift because I have an abundance of it. I want to give you something that will cost me. Something that's meaningful to me. I have the most beautiful nightingale bird that exists. And the nightingale bird, for those who are familiar with birds, some of them can sing absolutely beautifully. The melodious sounds of the nightingales are well known. Are you alright over there, girls? Okay. Presence of mind we spoke about. So this nightingale is my comfort. Whenever I'm in a bad mood, when I'm depressed, when I'm dejected, I go into my room and the nightingale cheers me up. I'm going to give my nightingale bird to you as a gift. And the peasant takes the bird and goes home. Two years later, the king is hunting again and he sees the hut and he remembers... From Sefer HaZichroinus, Divri Ayam, he remembers what happened two years ago. He knocks on the door, and the man is by the door. And he says to him, wow, how is my nightingale doing? Let me see my nightingale, let me hear my nightingale. man says, your majesty, what nightingale? He says, my bird, my nightingale, my precious bird. Don't you remember two years ago I rewarded you with the nightingale? And he's thinking and thinking, and the king is reminding him, he says, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course your nightingale. I took the nightingale home and that night I was making dinner and I cooked up this beautiful bird but then I tried to eat its meat. It was such tough meat, it was just not edible. But you'll be proud of me, your majesty. I'm a real serious chef. So I managed to satay it with the right amount of onions 
and potatoes and various herbs and spices, and it came out to be a pretty hefty and delicious dinner. And I really have to thank you for that special dinner. That's the end of the story. Right. Right. And that's the difference <laughs> of a life with davening and without davening. From the mouth of babes. Every single person, every single person could look at themselves and see two different things. You could see yourself as a piece of meat or you could see yourself for who you really are at your core, which is a nightingale. <laughs> and even more than a nightingale, an, a, an ambassador of music and an ambassador of the divine, an ambassador of love and light and hope. Somebody who has within him or her a chelik elikami mal, meaning that you and I are part of the Ein Saif, an extension of infinity, which means at your core you're filled with purity, holiness, wholeness, wholesomeness, you're impeccable, you're full of confidence, joy, optimism, serenity, grandeur, rapture, and creativity. But... I may, my eye may be hidden in my own shells, in my own husks. So davening is the daily journey towards the unraveling of the self and the discovery of the ultimate identity of the human being. When we speak about the relationship when the Rambam says, remove your thoughts and see yourself standing in front of the Shekhin, it's not just ask for your needs. And while you're asking for your needs, you should know who you're talking to. You should know that you're standing in front of God. No, that too, of course. But the very standing in front of Asha, the very establishment of that relationship, of the deep, intimate oneness that exists between the person and God, the fact that you and I, are really completely one, that is the purpose of davening. That is the experience of davening. The Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, once said in Yiddish, he said, Zenzich mit Atzmus Eirein Sof is Norin Davenen. To meet, to encounter the essence of Hashem, for that you need davening. There was a big chassid, he was killed by the, by the Germans, he was burnt alive, his name was Reb Itcha Masmid, Reb Yitzchak Horowitz. And he once said, I heard this from a Jew who heard it from him, Reb Mendel Futtafas, he once said, Wenn zetmen sich mit den beim Davenen. When does a Jew have, so to speak, an appointment with Hashem? That's what Davening is. And every part of Davening is part of that journey. It's literally like a highway that goes through various exits. It's part of that journey. Now you'll understand why this Pesukah de Zimra. All the introductions the Karbonis and the Pesukah de Zimra and the Brachis and everything, is really, as they say in Hebrew, Chomer Lemachshava. It's material for thought, for meditation, that allow the person to be able to go from the external 
to the internal, from the outer to the inner, from the insecure to the confident, from the superficial to the deep, from the earthy to the divine. And the text may be the same, but the material, what is contained in that material has so many layers of depth that if one takes it seriously, they will not get exhausted. I'm going to read to you a letter I received from a student of mine. He learned by me for quite a while. Years ago in a yeshiva, he was a teenager. And uh, we learned a lot about davening, especially various svarim of Musar and Machshava and of Chsidis, especially discourses from the Balshamtiv and his students, particularly long discourses of the Balatanya and his successes about davening. And he wrote me something very powerful. I want to read you a few paragraphs. He is today a rabbi in Atlantic City, extremely successful rabbi in Atlantic City. He says, for a long time, I had a very big problem with davening. To me, it felt like an ongoing marathon of saying words we read and read and we never stop reading. I was always okay with it. Take a few moments out of the busy life to acknowledge God. No problem. But I felt when you're given so much to read, it just makes it meaningless. How many times do we have to say how great God is? Why does God need us to give Him so many compliments? It seems that two or three compliments would suffice. The whole davening is filled with hundreds of praises to Hashem. I struggled with this for many years. I did it. I would skip some pieces. I would just dream about what I have to do that day. And that's how I got through the time. Then we started to learn. And this is what I discovered from so many of the teachings and of the classes about davening. Davening is the time when you strip yourself from all of your layers and facades and you become one with the real you. There is nothing as fulfilling as a good davening. What I felt was the most boring of experiences is really if you appreciate what it is capable of being the most fulfilling of experiences. Which human being in the world doesn't need the mindset and the power to truly discover who they really are and their true relationship with God. Davening is the time when you realign yourself with your deepest level of self. The essence of davening is to feel the reality of our reality. The I beneath the I. To realize that the depth and truth of our existence is God. That God is reality and we exist in reality. It's not like there is God and there is us. Just like there's no reality in us. We exist in reality. The definition of God is the definition of reality. I know this is one of the great messages that the Baal and many of the great mystics and masters taught of Ein Oid Malvadai. The true reality of reality is the divine. That is why we keep on talking about God's relationship to the universe in Psukkah Zimra. Attempting to inculcate in our hearts the truth that God and reality are synonymous. If you want to suck the marrow out of life, you need to daven, because God is the marrow of everything in life. And davening is the time when you become godly. A day when you daven, you're a different person, holistic, one. One day it really hit me. This is what you taught, but one day it hit me. It was Shabbos morning. I was davening in my Chabad house in Atlantic City. I just finished the Halalukas. I looked out the window. 
I saw splendid snow descending from on high, embraced with warmth by Mother Earth. Good for this weather. The whole yard was a beautiful silky blanket of snow. I was in awe. I froze. You know, the whiteness was so inspiring. I didn't have the words in which to articulate my sense of wonder. I thought, hey, I just said something about the snow. I turned back a few pages and I looked at the third Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Kitoiv Zamra Eloikenu, Tehillim 147. For the first time in my life, words that I have been saying for 20 years assumed profound significance. 20 years I was saying, Hanoisin Shele Katzomer, Kfoy Kaefa Yefazer, Mashlech Karchichvitim, Lefnei Karosim Yamoid, Yishlach Dvarev Yamsim Yashiv Rucha Yizlomoyim. Anybody wants to translate? So I'll translate for you. He gives snow like fleece, like wool, white wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls his ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He then issues his command and it melts them. He blows his wind, the waters flow, and it all melts. I have seen snow many times before, but I don't think I ever knew how to articulate the magic and amazement upon witnessing the sight of snow. I even know what snow is scientifically. The waters of our oceans get absorbed into the atmosphere and then form into ice crystals. I know what snow is, but I never had the ability to suck the marrow out of the snow experience. You know why? Because I never learned how to daven. Since that Shabbos morning, davening changed my perception of the world. I realized that the hope Sukkot de Zimra is about learning how to look at the world, seeing the world as an expression of divine energy, seeing yourself as an expression of divine energy. It allows me to see the godliness within the physical world, within the Remes and Sipar Kanaf, Malchei Eretz v'chalu umim, Sarim v'chal Eretz, Eish, Barat, Shela, Kitar, Ruach, Sa'ara, Eisadvare, Harim v'chal Gvoyez, Chaya v'chal Behema, in every mammal, in every insect, in every fish, in every bird, in every force of nature, in every tree, in every experience, to see the godliness within a human being named Avraham, that's his name. It helps me connect to the soul of creation and to the soul of the people I encounter during the day. It helps me understand that Hashem is just a word for the true reality of all. That Shabbos morning, I wasn't looking at a natural snowfall. I was looking at a divine symphony of whiteness. The dark, dry earth was being purified before my eyes with a white blanket of godliness which was covering the once physical world I knew. I still don't have a perfect davening. It's still hard to maintain concentration. I still get bored now and then, but I have a new respect. Prayer is not for God, it's for me. It's training me to look at the soul in every object, in every person, in every experience, in every phenomenon, and in every moment. To see that I am divine and to see the divine in my wife, in my children, in my world, in myself, in people. Most importantly, davening is the time when Avram Rappaport can become one with Avram Rappaport, I'd never give that up for anything. Which is why, and a lot of people don't know this, the Ramah, 
Rabbeinu Moshe Iserlish, who passed away two years before the Beis, three years before the Beis Yosef, in 1572, and wrote his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. He's buried in Krakow. He died on Lagba Emer, 1572, Shinlamid Beis. Beis Yosef died Yud Gimel Nissen in a few days as his yard site, Shinlamid Hay. There are more rights in Simon Sadek Ches in the Laws of Davening, quoting Rabbeinu Yoyna. V'yachshev koidem hatfila mireimimus hakel yisala a verdict in Shulchan Aruch. This is not a Hasidic work or a work of Musr. The Ramah says in Shulchan Aruch that before davening, a person has to meditate on the truth and infinity of God and remove their addiction and connection to materialistic habits which don't allow them to be able to experience this. Why, why do I have to think about this before? I'm going to daven for what I need. So even in Shulchan Aruch, because there's a journey. And then when you come to Shemayin Esra and you ask for your needs, it's a whole different perspective. It's not just, I'm desperate for this. Give me this, give me this, give me this. It's part of my divine mission in the world. All the things I ask for in davening is part of allowing God to be expressed in the world through my existence in this world. That's what the true needs of Shemayin Esra are. And after the person finishes such a davening, even if it's just for five minutes, you're a different person. The challenges you face in work that day are very different. The person who gets on the phone and is very obnoxious, you really don't have to stoop down to their level. When you have marital stress or stress with your children, when you have financial stress or internal psychological stuff, when you're dealing with abuse or old stuff that you can't get rid of, the journey of davening becomes not just a life jacket, it becomes the person completely transformed on a daily basis. And I don't mean a magical transformation. I mean the dent that awareness creates as a result of davening results in a different life that day. The way you eat, the way you sleep, the way you talk to people, the way you encounter people. The Torah that one learns after davening is a different Torah. It's an Eidele Torah. It's a divine Torah. This is a person who sees the world through a prism of Kedusha, of sacredness, of sensitivity, of holiness. Which, by the way, is the reason why davening went through an evolution in Jewish history. In the first base Hamikdash, there was no text. You can get up and daven for three minutes. In the second base Hamikdash, they instituted 18 blessings. Davening could take four or five minutes. After that, more and more was added with the generations. Now davening, even those who do a nice fast davening, it takes some time if you're going to say every word. And people say, who needs all this? And the answer is, as the bacterias build up in the human organism, you need the penicillins in order to be able to maintain your, equi- your health and your equilibrium. And the same is true in the spiritual experience of a person. How do we relate to this practically? It begins always with trying to understand words. <laughs> As the Rambam's second kavana. To really focus on words. Try to understand the words. I don't mean a guy once asked his friend, what does it mean, umekablin dein mindein v'amrin kaddish? Anybody? So he said, Parshat. He said, we're describing, we're finishing davening, so we're welcoming the two types of people who come to shul. 
Two types of people come to shul for two reasons. One group of people comes either they come to collect stucca, or they need a loan, or they want to get their loan paid back. So you come to network to get a favor, to get a favor paid back. That's one. The second group is those who have to say Kaddish for somebody who is in heaven. Somebody once asked me what it means. I said it means a little different. It means when you borrow money from somebody and then you have to pay them back, you don't have money to pay back. So you go to somebody else and you borrow from them and then you give it to the first person. Now you have to pay back the second person. So you go to a third, then you have to pay the third. So you go to a fourth. You go from one to the other. Somebody is going to say Kaddish on the money. We're not yet sure which person is going to say Kaddish on the money. That's one type of Pirush Hamilis of Davening. But I'm talking about somebody who even on a basic level stops when they say the words Eloikai, Nishama Shanasata Bitahirahi. God, the soul that you imbued within me, Tahira, is pure. And Tahira doesn't only mean pure, Ka'etsama Shamayim Latir, it means light. The soul that you imbued with me is full of light. It's infinite light, it's divine light. Somebody who focuses on the words Tatsileni Hayoim Uvachalyoim Me Adam Rame Khavirami Shachin Rami Lashanhara Misinas Habrius. I shouldn't hate anybody today. What about the words Ba'erev Yalin Bechi Vila Boikerina? Anybody knows what that means? Pinois Svav Kedoshim. You don't even know what I'm talking about. It's in Shachris. There's people who daven shachras for 50, 60, 70 years. They don't know what Pinoy Svav Kedoshim means. Va'ata mechaye eskulam. Ahavas oilam ahavtonu Hashem What does it feel like to be loved by somebody eternally? Next time you say ahavas oilam ahavtonu, stop for three and a half seconds and say to yourself in your heart, God is saying, you're telling God you loved us with eternal love. And if it's not enough, at the end of the blessing. And if you want Nusach Ashkenaz, it's not any worse. Ava Rabba is even greater than Ava Soylem. Sometimes it's a good idea to use a Siddur in English. I know people sitting here with Steimrach and Frax and Gartlach and they can say, me? So I'm saying, yeah, you. Take a siddur. If you don't want English, can Yiddish. Could be Lashen Kodesh, one that you speak. And focus every day on one paragraph. For two, three days, focus on one paragraph. Learn the translation. Read it in English. You don't want to read it with your mouth. Read it with your eyes. And every day you focus on another paragraph. In a few months, you'll get to know what davening is. You'll know what Pinoy Svav Kedoshim is. You'll know what Be'erev Yolin Bechi Boykirin is. You know what Afachta Mispedi Lamachali is. Somebody once asked me, what's that? Boruch Merachem Ala Aretz, Boruch Merachem Ala Brias. I said, there's two types of women. There's a woman who's Merachem Ala Aretz. She wants that the floor should be clean. For that, she'll do anything. And then there's other people, Merachem Ala Brias. They don't care so much about the floor to be clean. They want the people should be more relaxed. Okay? And here, I want to address a few questions. Somebody asked, I heard everything you said, beautiful. 
I teach children. How do you explain all of this to children? So many children, especially teenagers, don't like davening. Adults also don't like it, but they don't express it. Children and teenagers express it. How do you make it more meaningful, more exciting? And I'll tell you, the greatest gift parents and teachers can give children, what's the greatest gift you can give a child? What do you think? The greatest gift you can give a child, beyond, of course, the basic necessities and love and nurture and protection and safety, the greatest gift I can give my child is the knowledge that he or she has an intimate relationship with God. That means wherever they are in life, independently, whatever they have to face in life, they'll always feel that they are empowered, that they are divine ambassadors, that they're not victims, that they're not alone, that there's somebody who's there with them and for them. Children understand things much more than we imagine. Infinity, adults don't understand. Children know what infinity is. They sense it. Talk to children about infinity. Talk to them about real godliness, real divinity. Don't dumb it down for children. They get what Ein Soif is. They get what infinity is. And if I could explain to them the opportunity of Davine, to build that relationship, to express themselves... It will be meaningful to children and even to teenagers. But there's no mitzvah to torture children. Some people think, yeah, just because they're children, you could keep them for a very, very long time and davening doesn't stop. Their fathers would run away from such a shul before it began. But the children have to sit. You also have to be sensitive to their own mental space. You have to do it in a way that's relatable to their age. It's not a mitzvah. It should be an oppressive experience that they're going to hate for the rest of their life. Make it meaningful. And I would tell teachers and parents also, do something else. Every day in davening, take a paragraph, explain it with a story, with an anecdote, with an illustration. Psukah de Zimra speaks about science, speaks about nature. Why don't you focus one day on eight pre, what a fruit tree is like, and how much it's dependent on the divine plan, the divine energy. We learned today about snow. We speak about Eish, Barad, Shelech, Kita, Ruach, Sa'ara, Haharim, V'chal You could take different parts, different words, sentences, standards of davening. Tell a story, give an illustration, give an example. It needs preparation, it needs work. Show a video. Show a video. And then say, we're now going to tune in to the spirituality of this. To the divine presence in this. Make it real for children. Make it real for adults. All of the preparation of davening to Shemayna Esther is really getting into the mindset of looking at the world and at yourself from a much deeper, deeper perspective. There's another point I think that is very powerful for children and for teenagers and for everybody, for adults as well. And this has to do with a very interesting Rashi. The Pasuk says in Parshas Pinchas that Moshe Rabbeinu, who finds out that he's going to pass away, asks God to appoint a new leader. 
Yifkid Hashem Malakeya Ruchis Lechalbasa Ishala I want Hashem to appoint a new leader. The Jewish people shouldn't be like sheep without a shepherd. What's the next verse? What's the next chapter in that in, in Chumash and Pinchas? Besides Davin and Yosef to start learning Chumash. Hashem asks Moshe to tell the Jews to offer him every day his bread. One sheep in the morning, one sheep in the afternoon. He asks him to tell the Jews to offer a sacrifice every day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, known as the carbon Tamit. Asks the Sifri and Rashi, what's the connection? So they tell a story. And the story is that there was a woman, she was a princess, she had a large family, and she took ill, and she was about to pass away. And there was a home full of children. So she called in her husband. And she said, my dear husband, before I pass away, I need you to promise me you're going to take care of these children. You're going to nurture them. You're going to protect them. You're going to love them. You're going to feed them. You're going to respect them. You're going to be here for them. What does the husband tell her? You're busy telling me to take care of the children. Make sure you tell the children to take care of me. You know, I'm going to be the old goat in the house. Who's going to look at me? Tell the kinderlach to take care of me. Moshe comes to Hashem and says, Take care of the children. The mother is about to pass away. The Yiddish Imam and Moshe Rabbeinu, the shepherd, 40 years is about to pass away. Take care of the kids. He tells his husband, she tells her husband, Moshe tells Hashem. Hashem said, you want me to take care of them? Maybe you tell them to take care of me? I need to eat every day. They should give me bread. I need to eat. I need bread in the morning. I need bread in the afternoon. Make sure you give them an offering. This is what Rashi says. Now I want you, to think about this. Isn't this strange? I understand the widow is worried that the kids are going to rebel and say, "Who? Mommy is not here. Who are you? Get out of the house. We don't even need you. We don't want you. But Hashem is really the same way? Moshe is a human being. He says, take care of the children. I'm not going to be here. So Hashem says, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me to take care of the Jews. Tell the Jews to take care of me. They're children. I'm the father. I'm afraid to be abandoned. I'm afraid to be neglected. Make sure to give me my daily bread. What does this mean? Here we have one of the great daring truths of all of Judaism. And that is, God, the perfect, infinite one, chose to have an intimate and vulnerable relationship 
with the human being and the Jew. Sometimes I need you, and therefore I love you. And sometimes I love you, and therefore I need you. God doesn't need, but He loves. And the love creates a need. And because the love is infinite, the need, so to speak, becomes an infinite need. Because it's not coming from a void or an insecurity. It's coming from choice. It's coming from infinity. The love is infinite, so the need is infinite. One of the most painful experiences for a parent is when a child rejects them and refuses even to pick up the phone and say hello. So when Moshe tells God, the people need you, and he says, remember to tell them how much I need them in this relationship. Without them, I am also despondent. Now we know the Gemara says, Tfilois keneged tmidn tikno. Shachris and mincha correspond to the two sheep that they brought every day. So what does this tell us about davening? A Jew could think, a mincha from a a mincha of a simple Wednesday, a mayrib of a simple Thursday, a shachris from a simple Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday, whatever day it is. No. What Hashem is saying is that every mincha is an intimate one-on-one with the creator of the universe. Every time you pray to God, the world stops. And all Hashem wants to do is listen to you. His food, His existence. He feels is so much connected with this. You are the axis upon which the entire universe revolves. Never think of yourself as tiny, useless. The infinite, perfect God wants to hear from you. He needs you to be here from Him, for Him and to be here for the world. You know, two people who love each other infinitely, and then they meet each other after five years, when they come together, nothing can disturb them. When you start davening, this is what Hashem is saying. This is what I feel like. They once asked the Kotzke Rebbe, why in Kotzke they used to call the Seder, dinner, supper, and Kol Nidre, Mayriv. So he said, I teach my chsidim. That every supper, every dinner is a seder, and every maidiv is a kolnidre. Every supper is a seder, and every maidiv is kolnidre. Somebody once asked me, what's this thing? You forget Yalav Yav and you have to do the Hoshman Esther again. Come on! It's not enough the first time of torture, now a second time, I forgot Yalav Yav. Oh, you forgot it's a shchodesh. Wow, God really can't go on. Because Pliny Almoni, Yankel Finkelstein, who doesn't think, forgot Yitzhak Chodesh, big deal, he forgets everything else. When the Balshamtiv, before the Balshamtiv was known, he was looked down in certain places, so he was once in Broad. So there were rumors about the Balshamtiv that he knows Mamish nothing. He knows nothing. So, so a few rabbis went to interview him. So they thought, you know, they'll ask him a simple question. You know, when you come to a class and you see a child who knows nothing, like you ask him which letter comes after Aleph, because you want him to get a hundred. So, uh, so they came to the Bashem, they asked the Bashem to, what happens if you forget Yalav Yava in the davening of Rish What do you have to do? This is, they were trying to test his knowledge in Torah. 
So the Baal Shem Tov looked at the man who asked him and he said, there's no practical relevance to the question. I won't forget Yalav the first time and you'll forget Yalav even the second time when you daven. So I gave a metaphor. I said, imagine you take your wife out for dinner. You go to this beautiful place and you're having an enjoyable dinner and a great drink and delicious food. And it's a really a moment of bonding. And you come home. And your wife is upset at you. What else is new, right? And you want to know why. You know why she's upset? She's upset you were together for three hours. And you didn't even mention that it was your wedding anniversary. They say, what do you have to do to remember your wife's birthday? Forget it once. What do you have to do to remember its anniversary? You didn't mention it. Three hours, you spoke about everything. You didn't mention its anniversary. A Jew is davening Shemayin Esri, it's Rishchidosh, it's anniversary. Mailad Halavana, the sun and the moon, you didn't mention it. So we say, who cares? God said, what do you mean, Who cares? There's a real relationship here. The world stops when you start davening. I'm, 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 I'm here with you. This is my bread. I, I love you. I cherish you. I'm one with you. How do you miss it? How do you miss, how do you miss mentioning the anniversary? Just as a footnote, I'll add one vart that the Lubavitcher Rebbe once said when he spoke about this Rashi. Shabbos Pinchas, Tov Shin Lamed 1971. So the Rashi makes a very curious change from Sifri. In Sifri, the same story is brought, but with a different profile. It says that there was a king, and his wife was dying, and she asked the king to take care of the kids, and the king said, take, tell the kids to take care of me. Rashi changes the story. Instead of a queen, the wife of a king, he says it's a bas melech, the daughter of a king, and she was married to a man. Labayla, she was married to a regular guy. Why does Rashi change it? So he explains it according to Pshat, the whole Rashi there. But I want to bring out here the message when it comes to Karbonus and Tefillah. When a queen, Chas Vashalem, dies, the show got to move on. The country can't close shop. The king is not going to remain in the palace alone. There are ministers and leaders and advisors and consultants and security entourage and a whole cabinet, a whole team of people that are part of the palace and part of the apparatus of the regime of the monarch. The king is not going hungry. But when somebody's wife passes away and he's not a king, He's just an ordinary person, as the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Ein Isha Mesa Ella Labayla. A young woman dies, she dies for her husband more than anybody else. Yaakov said, Vani Mevoyimi Padon Mesa Alayrach. Sanhedrin Davchav Bez, I think. That's what Rashi is saying. It's a whole different situation. The vulnerability is a different type of vulnerability. I have nobody in the world besides my children. Without my children, I'm left alone. I don't have a whole country taking care of me. So God is saying, I have you. 
Our relationship is so deep. As the Majid Rebbe once said, the first one once said, from my perspective, it's you and me alone. It's you and me alone. There's an extraordinary story about the Helik Yerushan and the of Rizhin. It was once after Yom Tif, and he comes out to Shul, and it's close to midday, and he sees a young man starting to put on talis and tefillin. He says, why are you davening now so late? So the man says, Rebbe, what do you want from me? There's a bunch of chassidim here, they're all davening late. So he says, I'll tell you a story. There was once a Jew, he was a water carrier. He worked very hard. He used to draw water and bring home the bring sell, bring the water to various homes and get a little money. He used to come home at night exhausted, tired, and his wife always prepared him a meager simple meal. They weren't rich, couldn't afford a lot. But he had a simple meal. She would give him a cup of water and an old hard piece of bread and a shtickle kartoffel, a piece of potato, and that was it. One night he comes home from bringing the water home and he sits down for dinner. There's no dinner coming. And he waits 10 minutes and a half an hour and an hour. There's no food. And his, his hunger pangs are increasing. And he thinks to himself, Ah, do I have a special wife? She knows how hard I work. So probably... Tonight she's cooking up a storm. And the food that I'm going to enjoy tonight is going to be incredibly powerful and delicious. Another hour passes, there's no food. He starts thinking to himself, where did she get money for such a meal? She probably pawned, she probably sold, gave us a mashkin as collateral, her jewelry, in order to get me some real good delicious beef and some delicacies that even rich people don't have just to show her appreciation to my work. And as his kishkas are turning over from starvation, he's dreaming about this great feast that he's going to enjoy. Shine. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, his wife runs in, and she says, Oi, I forgot, I got delayed, I got confused, let me bring you food. And he brings her, he brings her she brings him the potato, the hard piece of bread and the cup of water. He looks at her and he says, for this meal, I didn't have to wait so many hours. This meal you could have given me right when I came home. So the Hele Kedushina said, there are those Jews who deliver to the Reboi Shalom a feast that is incredibly powerful. Es karboni lachmi li'ishai it's an incredible feast. So for that, he's ready to wait. But a davening like yours, this you could have done it early in the morning. <laughs> the way you do a davening, come on, what does he have to wait for? Wake up and daven up. Mele, you're giving him as a powerful davening. You need time. You need to prepare yourself, get yourself ready, your body ready, your mind ready, your soul ready, your psyche ready. But for this type of meal, an old hard piece of bread and potato, for this you can daven vasikin. Or daven right after vasikin. Make it, come on, with the 10 minutes, how does it work? 
five minutes from this to this, six minutes from this to this, seven minutes from this to this. I wonder, there's always signs in Shul how long it has to take. From Haidu to Baruch Shama, Baruch Shama to Yishtabach, Yishtabach to Krishna, from Krishna Shemineshe. What happens if Chas Vishal in the middle, the guy gets lost in his davening? What's going to happen? What happens if one time in the middle of davening, spontaneously, the person melts away in ecstasy? What's going to happen? So Azad davening, you could have done it early, what do we have to wait for? This is what the Rishon Rishon tells this Jew. So don't compare yourself to other people. For your davening, there's no reason to do it now. Nope. He heard what he said. And they moved on. They went home. On the way home, they stopped in a kretschma, in an inn. What we call today a Motel 6. They stopped in an inn. There was an old man. He was a Ben Meir. He was around 100 years old. Warming himself up on the oven. They had in the inn, and he was sitting there, and as the Hasidim of the Helik sat to eat, to drink, to fabring, to schmooze, he looks at them and he said, where are you coming from? They said, we're coming from the Helik Erizhen at Abisral of Rizhen. So he said, say something that he said. So they repeated what he said that day, that morning, to this young man about davening late. So the old man on the oven says, I say that your Rebbe is wrong. You know Hasidim, they hear this, they want to uh, pounce on him. He says, relax, I'll tell you why he's wrong. If that husband had real love to his wife, he would have enjoyed the potato and the bread and the water that came late with the same passion and enjoyment as though it would have come early or a big meal. You know why? Because knowing that this was done for him, prepared for him by his wife, he would appreciate it so much, he would sever, he would, he would cherish every bite and as he would consume each bite, he would feel so much gratefulness and gratitude and he would have enjoyed it. So I say this, he said, if God really loves a Jew, even a late davening that is fast, he would enjoy it so much because the Jew is giving it to him. Even if it's not such a beautiful and delicious meal. That's what I say. No. They had a chushareyach. They had a good sense of spiritual smell. So they decided they have to go back and tell the Rebbe the Zvar. They sensed that there's something here. They went back to the Bistral of Rizhen. And they told him the Vart. This man said, you're wrong. So the Helekirishina said, the neshama of this Jew came down to the world to say this vart. His soul came down to express this insight. With this, he completed his mission in the world. To be able to beautify and express the value of the davening of every Jew, including the one who does it swiftly and sometimes a little late. And it was understood that he was quite an old man. And this was his, so to speak, final 
move, <coughs> final hit in this world to be able to complete, to be able to complete his mission. The Chidush Harim once said, the Mishnah says, Tfilas ha'erev ein lokva, the Mishnah in Brachas. So he said, Tfilas ha'erev, a tefillah, vasizis, erev means night, and erev comes from the word arev, arevus, a tefillah that is sweet, that is pleasant, ein lokva. Then the time doesn't make such a difference. That's what this man was saying. If, if you care, if you love this person, a little piece of bread is also the world. You know, when you're crazy about some, somebody, they can look at you and you're like, wow. They can give you a little breckle and you're, you're, you're absolutely in awe because, because the relationship is very deep. I'm going to conclude with a story. The story was shared by a man. His name is David. He's 23 years old. He related it himself. I was an 11-year-old boy. I enjoyed a good laugh, a good ball game, and a good conversation with my friends. I was sitting in class one day, listening intently while my Rebbe discussed a Gemara that I never heard. The Gemara says he's referring to Mesechta of Gimel. The Gemara wants to know what Hashem does all the day, all day. After creation, what does he do? It's the first three hours of the day. He learns. Next three hours, he judges the next three judges the world, supervises the world. The next three hours, he feeds the world. The last three hours of the day, what does he do? He toys, he plays with the large Leviathan fish, as the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Kovdalad, Livyason, Zeyatzarta, Lesachik boy. You created the Livyason to play with it. Parenthetically, the Gemara says, after the Beis Hamikdash, that was time of the Beis Hamikdash, after the Beis Hamikdash, what does he do? He learns Torah with children. So he says, my teacher turned to us and he was sharing this with us. So he says, since the time of creation, what do you think Hashem does every day? It was a good question. I put down my pen. I leaned forward and he told us that Hashem plays with Leviathan, the big fish. I was shocked and I was amused at the explanation. I mean, of all the great things I expected to hear, I didn't expect to hear that God plays with the Leviathan. So I spontaneously laughed. What's so funny, young man? Asked my teacher. I could barely get the words out because I was laughing. What's so funny? I said, Rebbe, it sounds odd, doesn't it? I don't know. It's like, it's a funny thing that he plays with the Leviathan. I find it funny. The eyes of my teacher became very uptight. He demonstrated, he displayed the gesture that he used to display when he got really, really angry. His fists were clenched and he glared at me with red hot fury. Get out! I gasped at my Rebbe too shocked to move. Get out of my class, David. A boy who laughs at the Gemara and the Medrash 
doesn't belong in a Jewish classroom. Out! I stood up, I was shaking, and I walked out of the classroom. I was humiliated from the public humiliation. I stood in the hallways. I stood in anger and resentment. By the time I was allowed back into the class with a signed note from my parents and a detailed written apology, I was not the same boy anymore. I was a different David. I was at this point David the cynic. I was hurt by my teacher's extreme reaction. And the pain followed me for long years. I'm not going to blame my teacher for my steady decline in Judaism and Yiddishkeit. But I know that on that fateful day, the seeds of rebellion, anger, resentment, and indifference were planted. I'll fast forward several years. I was not connected to Jewish life anymore. I had a job working in an upscale restaurant as a waiter. I was 18 years old. I hadn't seen the inside of a yeshiva in five years. I haven't been part of any element of Jewish observance and Jewish life. One week, the restaurant was used by a Torah observant family for a Shabbos Simcha. It was Friday night, and I was doing my job serving the traditional chicken soup. I concentrated at my work, on my work as our manager constantly exhorted us to do. I was a good worker. However, the speaker stood up, and I was serving the soup. And as the speaker gets up, a family member turns to all of us waiters and says, please, Wait patiently before serving the next course. We don't want anybody to disrupt the speech. Sit where you are, and after the speech, you'll serve the next course. So there I was, leaning casually against the wall, and listening dispassionately to a speaker's words. The last time I listened to a rabbi speak was years ago when I was thrown out of class at 11. Now I was 18 and I was forced to listen to a rabbi because I had no choice. I couldn't do anything with the soup. And the rabbi gets up and says, the Gemara says that following the world's creation, what does God do every day? He plays with the Leviathan. I wasn't really listening first, but I was startled. I looked closely at the speaker. I almost thought this is a cruel joke of my Rebbe, who came back to torture me once again, and maybe throw me out of the restaurant again as I laugh. I looked at the speaker. Is he my teacher? Because I know my teacher is into this. No, this was not my Rebbe. What were the chances of hearing the same Midrash again? Years later. Seven years, six, six, seven years later. I didn't want to approach a rabbi. I was not religious. I was not from. My demeanor, my dress, my uniform was really not very in tune with the Jewish religious lifestyle. 
But it was such a coincidence. And I felt that I have to do something about it. When the guests started leaving as the meal was over, I hurried over to the speaker. Excuse me, Rabbi, do you have a minute? He nodded pleasantly, and I forged on, and I came over to him close. I said, I want to ask you a question. You quoted a statement in the Talmud about Hashem playing with the Livyasa, and the speaker nodded. Doesn't this sound strange to you? Is that really what Hashem is doing all the time for the last few thousands of years? All he does is for three hours every day plays with the Levyasa? How do you make sense out of this? I thought he would appear flustered or angry or annoyed or at least dumbfounded. But he was really fine. He wasn't flustered. He wasn't annoyed. He was calm, even though it was a secular waiter's question. He actually pulled over a chair and he asked me to sit down. And I sat down near him and he sat down near me. And then he said these words. He said, there's another medrash. The medrash famously says, Rashi brings it, that everything in the world was created male and female together. All insects, fish, mammals, <coughs> animals, birds, even trees, bushes, plants, flowers. There's the male and the female. Everything is male and female. That's how a new generation is created. The Leviathan fish was also created male and female. But God saw that if they reproduce, there will be no future to the world. So Chazal say, the rabbis say, He killed the female Leviathan and salted it for the righteous in the future world. Whatever that means, the man said, is for a different time. But what happened was that the Leviathan, the second part of the Leviathan, remained alone, saddened, and hurting. It was the only creature in my Sibiratius, in the creation of the world, that was lonely and alone. So our rabbis are saying, don't think that God ignored the sadness of the Leviathan. He continues to play with it every single day for many hours to minimize its pain and to make it feel that somebody is here with it all these thousands of years. He smiled gently at me. He said, Gachabas. And he said, if this is true of the Levyasan, how much more so it's true about lonely human beings. He left the restaurant. It was dark. And I sat in the chair pondering his words. And then I understood what he was saying. God remained with the Levyasan to assuage its pain. How much more so must he be involved with me, his child? Yes, this teacher humiliated me, and God allowed that to happen for reasons I cannot fathom. But I understood that he remained close to me throughout all of these years. I'm not going to sugarcoat the next few months of soul searching. Change doesn't happen any, every, overnight. 
But with time, I slowly made my way back. After all, I realized God was at my side all along. I was not alone. And I think, in many ways, what this precious young man conveyed here really captures one of the greatest themes of davening. In fact, the word levyason comes from the word levi hapam yilove ishi elai, which means accompanying, yilove, accompanying. My husband will accompany me, will be with me, will escort me, will connect to me. The word levyason is the word for connection. Levyason zeyatsar telesachikboy. In many ways, perhaps more than anything else, davening is the profound awareness, conviction of every single Jew that you're never, ever alone. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.